fishing attacks, fancy bear, and election security, and everything in between. We've got a full week of news to talk about. Speaking of fishing, we're going to talk to Aaron Higby from CoFence about how his company has upped Enterprise's way to combat fishing messages. No false alarms to be found here. Securiosity is very real. Let's go. Welcome to another episode of Securiosity. I'm Greg Otto with Jen O'Daniel. Jen, it has been a while since we've had such a flurry of news. I see y'all have been really crazy busy. That's what happens when election security is on everybody's minds and everybody freaks out about anything to do with anything election security was. So it has been nonstop this week. For our interview this week, we are talking to Aaron Higby, CTO of CoFence. Aaron's interview should be really interesting given his work around fishing and the tack vectors changing over the past 10 years. Perfect interview given the news this week, so let's jump right into it. So the big story this week, a phishing attack on the DNC that was discovered earlier this week was in fact not a phishing attack, but a test conducted by an unauthorized third party. The test, run by a group out of Michigan, mimicked several attributes of actual attacks on the Democratic Party's voter file, and according to DNC Chief Security Officer Bob Lord, it's further proof that we need to continue to be vigilant in light of potential attacks. News of the phishing incident emerged Wednesday after cybersecurity firm Lookout discovered a phishing site replicating the login to NGP Van, a tech provider for Democratic organizations. That discovery led the DNC to contact the FBI, but it turned out to be a false alarm and just really triggered memories of what happened in 2016. Jen, my question to you, is it a good thing everything reacted so quickly, or is it bad that it even got to this point? So I think it's a good thing everything reacted quickly, but that said, it probably should have made the news just given that it turned out that it was an authorized look. Yeah, it's interesting to me that there were some people kind of taking a joking victory lap on social media like haha like this is ridiculous this shouldn't be the way that it's done when quite the opposite i think this perfectly played out the way that election security should work uh an an ai engine for lookout popped up something that looked like a phishing attack they called up the dnc and went you guys need to get on this now and investigated it and it turned out to be a false alarm and 24 hours later everybody went about their business that, that should be the way that cybersecurity works, despite the fact that it, from, from a PR standpoint, it kind of looks like we're, we're running around with our heads on fire, but yeah. that's the way security works. Yeah. So, I would have waited 24 hours, though, to call. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm sure that somebody leaked something to, I believe CNN was the first outlet to put something online about this, and, you know, the that was the dam sort of breaking and everybody rushed to cover it, including ourselves. But I think 48 hours could have, you know, uh, yeah. And I don't think we would have even been talking about this. So good on everybody for doing what they did, but anybody that's like dunking on the DNC for like, not knowing the difference between a false alarm and a real one, well, you don't. I mean, you you don't know. And look, you want them to follow up with it. Right. But let's talk about something that actually happened this week. So Facebook and Twitter announced late Tuesday that hundreds of accounts tied to influence operation that had been removed as part of the company's heightened efforts to remove bad actors from the social media networks. In a blog post, Facebook announced it had removed 652 pages, groups and accounts for what the company is calling coordinated inauthentic behavior. The accounts were linked to a group known as Liberty Front Press, an effort that originated in Iran. 
Working with cybersecurity firm FireEye, Facebook discovered the group was primarily posting political content focused on the Middle East, as well as the UK, US, and Latin America. Later in the week, Google also took down material that looked to be related to the same group. Greg, there's been some confusion as to whether or not this is tied to an upcoming election. What can you tell us? Uh, it's It doesn't look like it is necessarily tied to the 2018 midterm elections in the U.S., which just goes to show that it's taking a page from American exceptionalism, if you will. Like, not every influence campaign is out there that... It's and, always and, about and, us, right? Yeah, right. It's always about us. Uh, and this one really... Look, look, it was there to sow discord, but it wasn't necessarily tied to any uh, election, any particular election or just, you know, just to the U.S. efforts overall. I mean, influence campaigns are out there, and some of them, uh, you know, as we saw with the Internet Research Agency, are very focused on very hot-button topics. This one just seemed to be more in line with just saying the U.S., the U.K., the West, the West is bad, and here are the reasons that they are bad. Yeah, influence campaigns, this is part of the playbook now when it comes to the way security works and the way information operations works and the way propaganda works. Just because it took it down doesn't mean it was necessarily wildly successful. However, given the heightened attention to it, I can see why Facebook and Twitter and Google reacted the way that they did. And they have to do that. And good on them for finally realizing that this is what needs to be done when these type of accounts are flagged. Be transparent. We will cover it in the news, and then we will move on. So moving on to the godfathers of information campaigns tied to elections, the Russian intelligence office that breached the DNC in 2016 has been spoofing websites associated with the U.S. Senate and conservative think tanks, according to new research from Microsoft. The tech giant last week executed a court order and shut down six Internet domains set up by the Kremlin-linked hacking group known as Fancy Bear or APT28, uh, according to Microsoft President Brad Smith. The domains were constructed to look like they belonged to the Hudson Institute and the International Republican Institute, but were in fact phishing websites meant to steal credentials, and experts posit that, of course, this was a further attempt to sow discord. Jen, this isn't the first time that Microsoft has raised the red flag in the past month. Is it interesting that they seem to be the one all over this? Hey, look, you're not very relevant in the tech space right now if you're not talking about phishing and you're not talking about the election. So they sort of need to be. Yeah, and it was interesting that Microsoft also put out their public-facing like election security offerings, which is something that we've talked about numerous times yeah. on this podcast, and we've written about it on CyberScoop, that a lot of these companies are starting to put themselves out there from a, a marketing uh -huh. standpoint. And this is something that we're going to continue covering, but I feel like Microsoft has really, really taken the lead on at least bringing to bear the information regarding the accounts, not so much using it just so much as, hey, we're going to throw this software out there just because it's, no, okay, we see the attacks. Here's something that can help with these specific attacks. So, well, and that's good marketing in itself, right. too. So we have a better look at how that $380 million dedicated to election security would be spent. About a third of federal funding meant to improve election technology will be spent on cybersecurity-related improvements, while another third will be used to upgrade old equipment according to plans released Tuesday by states in the U.S. Election Assistance Commission. 41 states are spending at least some of the funding specifically on cybersecurity upgrades to their election infrastructure. Six states plan to spend every dollar they received on a new voting equipment, including Delaware and Louisiana. Two of the five states that exclusively use election ballot machines 
that do not produce paper backups. Greg, how do we see this money shake out? So it was really interesting from the standpoint of that they divided it between quote unquote cybersecurity upgrades and equipment upgrades because to me it's part and parcel. It's the same thing. If you're getting new voting machines, those new voting machines are going to have better cybersecurity features baked in. So that's a cybersecurity upgrade. If you're just looking at it through cybersecurity upgrades and, oh, we're going to attach um, some products and some tools to our voting system pages, that's the same thing. I just have a problem with the way that it was labeled. I think the states are being smart and being proactive uh, about the way that they're spending their money. I just think that all of it is going to cybersecurity, whether it's, quote, unquote, a legacy upgrade or not. So $380 million sounds like a lot of money until you divide it amongst all the states. So how much would it take to get all of our voting machines sort of upgraded so they're no more than, like, two or three years old? I personally don't have a quantifiable number, but in talking with various states out at DEF CON, the secretaries of states, they say they need more money. They need more resources, and it needs to go beyond this $380 million. Um, and this is an argument that is playing out on Capitol Hill right now. With regards to the Secure Elections Act, uh, the Secure Elections Act would help states get more resources and would help them look past 2018 and 2020 and kind of look at this from, you know, a constant cycle of needing to stay up with cybersecurity features in their election software and the hardware that they use. So, I mean, look, California is always going to need more money than Rhode Island is going to when it comes to election security. The Secretary of State's know what they need from a, a money standpoint. I think that they understand that it needs to come from somewhere, whether it's the federal government or their own state's budget. If the federal government's going to give it to them, they're going to take it. So I get why sure. they're trying to rally around the federal government and say, hey, pass this law, help us get more money, and, and help us make sure that this isn't a problem that we're losing our minds over every two years. So most Americans know how to get in touch with the police in cases where they're physically threatened or hurt. However, reacting to a cybersecurity emergency isn't so easy for the average person, or so says Andre McGregor, a former FBI cyber special agent. In a keynote at Fed Talks in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, McGregor argued that while the government has gotten better over the years at thwarting hackers, things are fuzzy from a constituent perspective. Jen, would you even think to call 911 or even bother if you or a startup you help oversee was a victim of a cyber attack? I think from a company perspective, right, you don't really want to get it out there that you've been hacked. Um, you know, I think that's why we see sort of that month or two lag when, when users' data is breached. Um, you know, from an individual perspective, you know, every time, um, you know, I get a fake call from somebody or starting an attack, I, I almost want to report it because, you know, for every thousand calls, there's probably somebody that's handing out the information, and so you'd like it to see it. Uh, reported and widely known. Right. And it's funny you bring up that companies don't like to admit that they're hacked, which I think personally is a bad mindset to go about it because I think about it in terms of physical security too. That same startup was broken into and had computers or any type of technology stolen from a physical space. They wouldn't hesitate to call the cops. I mean, that's they, they wouldn't look at it like oh, we somehow were negligent in some some way. Right. We were the victims of a crime. We have law enforcement to help us with that crime, and we will go through that process that has been tried and true for centuries. 
in this country. The notion that that doesn't carry over to cybercrime really, I, I can't wrap my head around it. Like, you, you are a victim of a crime. Like, these things we've seen time and time again. It's kind of why we're sitting here right now hosting yeah. a podcast where these things happen. So why are we being so quiet about it? But I get to Andre's point during his talk, there is nobody to call. Like, yeah, you can call the FBI, you could call DHS, and, and they have had a lot of conversations about who should be the first responders. But I think this is an interesting idea in that there should be a, a direct line, whether it is on a local municipal state level, where you can call and have somebody come in right away and not have to have that lag time. So a couple of weeks ago, I got a phone call from the fake IRS, a call I get all the time, uh, but this time it was a little bit different. They actually read me my social security number on the phone, um, which I think is scary. And I no, that's, abs- that's absolutely frightening. Reported, right? Right. There's nowhere to report that at. So, you know, just interesting. No, it is. It's an absolutely interesting idea. I think that there, I mean, there's a lot that would need to go into that idea. But, hey, it, it, it beats being silent about a crime when you have a crime committed against you. So the recent high-profile leaks of U.S. government hacking tools won't dissuade the intelligence community from adopting cloud computing and other hallmarks of a digitized world, Sue Gordon, the principal deputy of national intelligence, told CyberScoop Tuesday. The most recent of these leaks has been last year's Vault 7 episode, in which a former CIA employee allegedly leaked information on numerous U.S. government zero-day exploits. With each one of these exposures, we've addressed that exposure and then tried to create an environment that is more protected. Gordon told CyberScoop. So, Greg, Gordon talked to you about this. What do you think about what she's had to say? Uh, I think that she is between uh, a rock and a hard place, especially when talking about Vault 7, because Vault 7 was an insider threat. You're not going to have an insider threat, as damaging as it is, upend your entire IT infrastructure and say, okay, well, we're going to keep everything on-prem and we're going to cancel that $600 million contract that we have with AWS and we are going to just harden everything and have it be completely unusable. No, you're not going to do that. That's not logical, whether it's the CIA or some startup. like That, that just doesn't make any business sense. So um, the, the cloud computing, the government is embracing it regardless, and they're going to find ways to put in the cybersecurity standards that they need, whether it's with the intelligence community or... The Jedi contract, I mean, we've seen all the noise around the Jedi contract, and there's been a lot of noise, and it's not going away. I mean, the Defense Department's going to move to the cloud, and somebody's going to get that $10 billion contract regardless of the risks. I mean, risk management is part and parcel with doing all of this. And uh, Deputy Gordon is saying, hey, you know, the risks have been baked in, but we're not going to stop using cloud. Just it makes sense. It's it's yeah. good business, and whether it's Vault Seven, Shadow Brokers, whatever, this is something that they're the government is going to have to account for. But I think that they're not going to move away from cloud because of those risks. So, the gray market is a really interesting place to be in the world of cybercrime. A tried and true tradition is selling surveillance malware under the thin veneer of remote access software. Now, U.S. law enforcement has been alerted to the use of the Remcos remote access tool in multiple global hacking campaigns, according to some research from Cisco Talos' security intelligence group. 
Uh, Remcos allows a user to sneak malware by security products and then take over and secretly surveil a targeted computer. Remcos itself, however, is not marketed that way. It's marketed as a legitimate tool by a German company called Breaking Security, who says, of course, that it's an excellent product for remote control of numerous computers. The software has been spotted in hacking campaigns targeting defense contractors in Turkey, news agencies, diesel equipment manufacturers, and energy sector companies. Yet U.S. law enforcement seems very interested in finding out the true use of the product. So, Jen, I'm wondering if you have ever come across this problem with the company that you work with, where the company has been seemingly caught up in some shady dealings with their product, even if their product may not be intended for that use. And for for this uh, Remcos, I think that it's not just that, oh, we didn't have control over this. Like, we, we just had this tool out here, and we don't know how people are using it. It's not our fault. Like, no. Oh, okay. Like, it's, it's stop playing dumb. But I, I'm wondering how much this actually comes up with businesses where they have these tools, and they can be used for nefarious purposes. Look, so I've been lucky. We are 200 portfolio companies in. We have not had this problem. Um, that said, I think, you know, this could happen and a company doesn't know about it um, and, you know, is sort of an innocent bystander in this, right? We create great tools and you never know how they're going to be used and who's going to use them. Bad guys and good guys are going to are going to use them in the end. But, you know, certainly I think you um, know who your customers are and you become aware of things and, you know, you need to report it when it happens. Um, and I don't know if this is the case here or not. I guess we'll find out soon. You know who your customers are, but also I, I can't imagine, because I'm sure there are instances where there are tools that are used for nefarious purposes. Actually, I think Mimicats, Metasploit, uh, things like that, where there are these pen, pen testing tools that are often co-opted by hackers and are used for nefarious purposes. And they're attached to bigger companies than this breaking security. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, Rapid7, which owns Metasploit, is constantly like, please, please stop like I'm, I'm sure they have disclaimers everywhere that's like no th this can be used for good as much as it can be used for bad i had a company pitch me that had um a cybersecurity tool that would allow you to sort of mask um sort of what someone's doing but it also allows you to mask crimes um and so he was able to point out um an incident that had happened in the news in recent weeks and say had they been using my tool no one would have found out about this and you just sort of you know, sort of wide-eyed, almost have to say no to investing in the company just because, wow, all the bad things that could happen. Yeah, the legal ramifications have got have have got yeah. to be just staggering. And you know, for a startup, it, it's, it's something that you definitely need to think about as your company grows. So hacking back is back, although idea never really went away, but it hasn't been talked about openly in D.C. for some time. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse raised the specter of hacking back once more on Tuesday when he argued for a more transparent process in which a company could approach the government for permission and guidelines on retaliation. If a major CEO wanted permission to figure out how to hack back, I don't think he'd know what the agency's door to knock on to actually give him an answer, White House said as a Judiciary Committee hearing. Greg, what's it going to take for this idea to be put to bed? Uh, the Cyber 9-11 that we were just talking right. about that was talked about yeah. at, at Fed Talks because otherwise... I, I think that you're going to see this is going to end bad. We could do this every episode where we could have just a disclaimer 
run up top that says, if you're a company and you're thinking about hacking back, that's probably a bad idea. It's going to end poorly. And I feel like we're going to have to have an instance either where a company does it on their own and breaks the law, or we have a law passed and the company does it. And then the ramifications become this geopolitical mess that we all sort out for months. And everybody's going to go, yeah, we should have listened to everybody when everybody said that it was going to be a bad idea. Now, I understand where Senator Whitehouse is coming from, where he says, I don't think we know where a company's supposed to go when they have a problem like this, which, again, goes back to the Cyber 911 thing. If a company sure. could pick up the phone and instantly go, okay, we're, we're seeing something, and it doesn't have to be on a national level where they're not necessarily calling the FBI or DHS for every instance, um, I think that would be beneficial, and it would go a long way into keeping things safer than a company turning offensive measures onto a government state sponsor in Iran or North Korea or something like that. That is going to end very, very poorly. A former government contractor accused of linking confidential information to the media has been sentenced to more than five years in prison. Reality Winner was accused of taking a report about a 2016 Russian military intelligence cyber attack from the NSA facility that she worked in and giving it to The Intercept. Winner initially faced 10 years in prison and a $250,000 fine but accepted a plea deal. A federal judge sentenced her to 63 months in prison with three years of supervised release. Jen, this has stirred up a lot of feelings in the D.C. area. What do you think of this sentence? Well, I think she should have been sentenced. I think um, it's our responsibility not to be passing out that type of data, even to reporters. What are your thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) Pregnant pause there, obviously, as the reporter in the room. Look, I I don't want to get into the inside baseball media protecting sources that they're, that's a different podcast. Um, However, I will say that we protect sources. So if anybody does want to, we, 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 we protect sources at all costs. Um, No, Uh, as far as the sentence is concerned, I'm really, interested in seeing how this has resonated in the D.C. cyber community because I contrast with Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden where there seems to be in the official capacity a lot of angst and a lot of anger into what uh, Snowden and Manning did. But with this one, I've seen a lot of people be like, you know what, this sentence was a little bit too harsh. And that's really surprising to me because she it's still classified information that is out there. Yeah, but at the same time, this information ended up being public anyway. In part due to the report that she passed out, but it was through other means as well. Like this eventually came to light, whether it was through Congress or whether it was through official reports. Like everybody's cop to this being like the actual reality of what pardon the pun, the actual (laughs) reality of what has happened so yeah yeah it doesn't matter what that information actually was if you're told do not disclose this don't disclose this right and i'm not saying that she should go scot-free but at the same time with the information being already out there is it really worth being heavy-handed for the crime that was committed i i just i think it was a little harsh too but i think i'm, I'm really interested in the fact that there are a lot of people that have spent time in the intelligence community that agree with me on that point, which is shocking to me because normally that they are like right off the bat, nope, classified information was out there. She put it out there. She gets what she deserves. Okay, but not this time? Interesting. 
I don't know. I, I, I think it's interesting from just that perspective that there seems to be a little bit more leeway coming from people that used to deal with classified information, and they even they think that this is heavy-handed. I mean, I guess I take it from the perspective of given such a heavy sentence and given that the information really wasn't all that great, you know, you might be looking at yourself and thinking, what have I accidentally said to somebody or I, I don't know. It just, I'm all for the heavy handed sentence. It's it, look, this is, it, it is a tough topic and one that I'm sure will be continued to be debated uh, moving forward. But that's all the time that we have for that. On to our interview with Aaron. Uh, for this interview, so we do talk, the majority of it is about fishing and his work at CoFence. But I really encourage everyone to stick around for the entire interview. So our random question got really random at the end of the interview. It's probably my favorite answer from an absurdity standpoint. It's definitely worth listening to. Check out the whole interview. Okay, we're here with Aaron Higby, CTO of now CoFence, used to be FishMe. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So we'll get into the name change a little bit later, but first, right off the bat, I got to ask you, why are people still clicking on links and emails that they have no idea where they came from? <laughs> because it's human nature. You know, our job is to receive email and then do something about it. And if you look at how quickly and rapidly enterprises have been adopting different cloud technologies, different SaaS uh, uh, programs for managing their Salesforce, managing their HR rewards and benefits programs. Almost every one of these cloud SaaS tools sends an employee something, some action to take in an email. And so it's not just that people are unaware of phishing, but it's the fact that the tools that the enterprise is choosing to, you know, be productive, use email, and they need employees to click links and, and attachments inside of those emails. So it's kind of a perfect storm. So how do you see things evolving in this space? Because look, phishing emails have long been a vector when it comes to attacks. I doubt they're going to go away anytime soon, but... We were talking beforehand about sort of the evolution of attacks. How do you see them moving forward? Well, they are moving forward, but surprisingly, there's some things that are staying the same. And when I talk to people about phishing, I usually have to level set to kind of understand where they're coming from. Because as a consumer fraud, identity theft, consumer password stealing tactic, it's still very much there. And so sometimes when you talk to someone in cybersecurity, you have to understand where they're coming from, because if they're looking at anti-fraud tactics, that's where they're coming from. My customers are primarily focused on uh, defending their enterprise. And so the types of phishing that they're worried about are more targeted business email themes, office communications in order to you know, get it, company secrets or to get on the network. And so... One of the things that I've noticed at different security conferences is it's always exciting to talk about the phishing ghost story, meaning okay. they, they, they figured out which car service the executive used, and then they spoofed that car service to get that per person to click. And if you talk to people in incident response, that variant is so few and far between in the massive sea of ocean of you've received a voicemail, you've received an invoice, you've received an easy pass toll violation, these rinsed and repeat themes that spearfishers have used for years, that actually hasn't changed that much. But we're starting to see a little bit of a sea change there. 
So talk to me a little bit about some of the sea change you're seeing in terms of how attackers are evading phishing technologies that are in like general email platforms like Gmail and Microsoft Office and stuff like that. Sure, absolutely. And, and forgive me if I sound excited about this, but <laughs> when I see evolution from the attacker's perspective, because that's my own background, I, I, I do love it. I do like seeing what clever ways that we didn't think of that they did in order to get uh, past some filter. So uh, not too long ago, about two weeks ago, there was a, 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 a white paper put out about a tactic called Zero Font. And the idea was, hey, we know that some next generation technologies are using natural language processing to try to pick up on common themes inside of phishing emails, like that you've received a voicemail or someone has sent you a file from a scanner. And so these new technologies, they're looking for those words and they're trying to identify them as fishy or suspicious. But what ZeroFont did is it interspersed other characters, but then in the HTML and CSS for the email, it said, I don't want you to display those. So when NLP went to process this, it couldn't see that, it couldn't read it. It looked like a gibberish word, but to the human looking at it in their Outlook client, it was the same old, you received a, a, a file from the fax machine phishing email. That's, I mean, that's really interesting that it's gotten to the point where, you know, it, this stuff is going to happen, and I'm sure as a company, like you were just saying, it excites you. So it's, it's interesting to hear that. What about phishing attacks that were predicted that didn't happen, like mobile? Oh, I love that topic. And, you know, a big part of my customers are security awareness professionals, and they have to rely on the expertise of the content providers. And I've seen a lot of bad, bad security awareness advice and modules out there, namely things like um, don't click on attachments on your mobile device or don't uh, click on URLs from your mobile device. They're following the same conventions that you would say, say to someone on a Windows desktop. But if you look at the history of exploit exploitability of these platforms, you know, the iPhone was exploited by Charlie Miller at the Pwn to Own conference, CanSec West, in 2007. And then there was a long period before just clicking a link inside of an SMS or an email and an attachment actually resulted in a compromise. And that had to do with um, people uh, involved in the United Arabic of Emirates uh, some political dissident was having a problem with their government. Then we saw a very sophisticated fish using uh, uh, an iPhone, but it took three iOS zero days chained together in order for that to uh, happen. So the, the scarcity of that is so few and far between that if I'm personally unsure about what I'm needing to interact with, I'm going to open it from an iPad or an, I, an iPhone way before I'm going to open it from my Windows computer. Interesting. So with the mobile part of it being a protection, other protections that are in like consumer-grade email, you often see in Outlook or Gmail, the report phishing button. With, with what we were just talking about in terms of, you know, with mobile and how hard this is or with the way that natural language processing goes into it, does that button really mean anything anymore? That depends on okay. whose button it is. So we've had this button in our email clients for years. And usually it goes to the spam technology vendor to help them try to find spam. 
Um, and that doesn't really help the enterprise. That doesn't help the enterprise know if they're being attacked and what level of sophistication of that attack is. So a few years ago, we released a report phishing button that goes to the security operations team. Okay. We now have that button installed on over 12 million uh uh, desktops and enterprises worldwide. And the best part of that is not just getting real actionable intelligence to the security team so that they can do something about real phishing, is now we have statistics not only on the susceptibility of an enterprise worker from our simulated phishing emails, but how quick and accurate they are at reporting real phishing emails. And so you had a new product come out at Black Hat this year. What was it? So kind of following on that theme, you know, if you kind of look at the history of the company, when we came about, the, the kind of n narrative or the rhetoric was the human is the weakest link. Yeah. Um, this network would be secure if we can stop our users from clicking on things. And so that's the, the thing that we chipped away at. Then we got a button in the hands of the enterprise worker to show that, wow, actually the rate and accuracy of them reporting a fish far out. Uh, outpaces the people falling for the fish. So the people that needed to learn that lesson the most were the people in the security operations centers because they kind of figured all of their day is taken up by cleaning up incidents of people clicking on a fish. So it was quite eye-opening when they started looking in that security or that abuse box that they've been ignoring for the past 15 years that, oh my God, Bill and accounting can actually send us a fish that's in progress, so we need to listen to Bill. And so one of the things that uh, Stone that we uncovered, and it wasn't um, on purpose, was that the security teams, now that they have a live fish in progress, they have another problem of they don't know who else received a copy of that fish. Because for years, they've thought the human is the weakest link. For years, they've been ignoring that security inbox and that sock. So now they have this problem of they have a fish, but they don't know who else received a copy of it. Um, there's two ways that companies have been dealing with this. So if you're a highly effective sock, you've been squirreling away subjects from lines to your Splunk or your Kibana box for years, but your legal department or your CISO probably doesn't know that you're doing that. There's not a lot of governance or oversight, but that's how SOX have been finding out who else received a copy of this fish. That usually has to do with a strained relationship between the security operations center team and the mail team. Um, I, I don't know why, but for whatever reasons, what we've observed is a lot of these, in a lot of our customers' cases, they're not getting along that well, those two groups. Um, so we released a product called Vision, which is a rapid index that's meant to be a fish hunting platform. So because we're only keeping for our customers between seven and 10 days worth of email, they're able to use this to do really robust queries to correlate it with their phishing reports to figure out who else received a copy of that fish and then get it out of employees' inboxes in a matter of seconds. And then it's wrapped with all of the user access control and the reporting that an HR team, a legal team, a CISO would need to make sure that their staff is using this tool effectively. So on top of this tool and on top of everything else that we've talked about, what are the top two or three things that an individual should be doing to protect their company and protect the data that they handle? You know, I'd say the first thing they should do is, is trust their intuition. So, you know, humans are remarkably effective at just spotting something that's not quite right. I mean, we have the ability to make quick decisions about things that just seem off. So if someone has that 
you know, pop into their head that, you know what, this salutation, dear so-and-so, I've never heard that from Jen before. She never starts her emails with dear. Maybe this might be something that I need to be worried about. So the number one thing that they can do in any case like that is report it, is to report that suspicious email. So let's circle all the way back and tell us how you got into cybersecurity. Ooh, that's a long story. And so it's, and I, I have my brain filled with the, uh, useless information from back in those days. So I'm pre-internet, <laughs> you know, I, I got involved with modems and, and BBSs. My first job in cybersecurity was abuse at earthlink.net. Wow. And this was back in 1997. I remember the conversation with my parents about dropping out of college to go work for the internet. And they signed, they thought that was a crazy idea. And I said, well, my CEO is 26, so obviously he knows what he's doing. Um, <laughs> so, so that's what I did. And that's what really got my finger on the pulse of everything bad that was happening. So I was doing anti-spam. Uh, I was working with uh, our legal department, subpoena compliance, credit card fraud, saw phishing emails back then. Everything that my subscribers that were doing that was bad was coming across my desk. And that really began to pique my interest of, well, how are they breaking into these accounts? How are they committing credit card fraud? What forms are they on? And that's what eventually led to me moving to uh, Northern Virginia. I wanted to go to the Mecca, the homeland of ISPs. And that's, that's, that's what was here. And I did that in 99. So you've stayed in Northern Virginia since then, and you started up Fish Me, which now has become Cofence, we were talking about at the top. Um, explain to me the name change and the deal that went down earlier this year and how that all came together. Sure. So we've been operating under the Fish Me banner since we got started. And, you know, if you're talking to any budding entrepreneurs and if you dust off their how to brand and name your company, <laughs> there's probably something in there that says the name of your company, think of it as a vessel. It should be large enough to carry you through multiple phases of, of a company's growth. Well, Fish Me wasn't. So we, we <laughs> I mean, it was great. It explained exactly what we did when we had just one product was the simulation services. But it didn't talk about, you know, the market penetration we had with reporting phishing emails, how well we were doing in security operations centers with our product called Triage. These products started to take off and eclipse simulations to where it was time. We had this discussion as a senior management team several times. Is it time to change the name? And knowing that we had new products under development, like Vision that I just that I mentioned earlier, we knew that it was it was time to do that. Um, as far as the deal that was announced earlier this year, which was you know being a majority acquired by private equity, it wasn't something that um, we were looking for. Uh, but, you know, something happened that, that forced us to do a competitive process. And when you're building these companies for a long time, I think as an early entrepreneur, you think, hey, I'm going to get to 10 million, 20 million in revenue or whatever it is. And then I'm going to sell it to a Symantec, a McAfee, a Cisco and let their sales team uh, carry the torch. And you know, as our revenue started climbing and our customer base started climbing, I kind of thought, okay, any day now, someone's going to knock on the door and, and give us this fabulous offer. But uh, what I realized and my co-founder uh, Rohit Balani realized is we're a real kind of misfit for a lot of the traditional security companies because how can you out of one side of your mouth say, buy my secure email gateway, it's going to stop phishing. Oh, and by the way, buy these phishing simulation services for when my email gateway eventually fails and lets that phishing email through so that your employees know what to do and how to report it. That's a 
mouthful for any sales rep right. in order to sell. And so we did the dance with a few companies over the year, but I could see that that problem kind of in that CEO's mind on the other side of the table. And what that afforded us was to just to keep growing. And so we started growing and growing um, to the point where now, you know, the revenue numbers started to get interesting to where we could potentially do even bigger things. And uh, this, uh, this deal came to us. It was a good deal for us personally because, you know, if you look at the average trajectory of a company, it's seven to 10 years. So for most of my adult career, I've been doing this. Um, so this was an opportunity to take some risk off the table personally, especially for other members of my senior management team, and then have a new financial partner to go and do bigger and better things. So we always end this on a random question. And you recently went to Africa. What was your favorite animal? I'm going to go anti. My least favorite animal was the hippo. It is Why? just Why? the Why? most disgusting, vile beast. They just... <laughs> Like, you know, you know, you get sad at the, you know, the, the, the numbers of rhinos that are going down and, you know, other problems you have with endangered species. But the hippo, I would not be sad if that thing went fully extinct. It's <laughs> did, just, it, did it like steal <laughs> your stuff? You? Did it attack you? Okay. Like, I, I, you just have to see one in person to, and I think you will appreciate the same kind of, uh, hate and vitriol that I have for the hippo. Definitely <laughs> the worst animal ever. Okay. Wow. Well, all right. That's why we do the random question there. Just, I'll just give you a random a answer. Yeah. <laughs> dig in a little bit, but hopefully we don't have any hippos come across your way and yeah. we can uh, oh, continue to talk it. to you. Yeah. We'll continue to talk to you about fishing and all the things that you're doing there to help companies out. Aaron, thanks for joining us. God, thank you. Thanks, Aaron. So, wow, Jen, my man, does not like hippos. No, he doesn't. But hey, we wanted random and we got it. Does that make us an anti-hippo podcast now? I don't know. An anti-hippo cybersecurity podcast is pretty niche. Um, I think we shouldn't do that. I don't have any problems with hippos. So, Aaron, you're on your own. PETA, don't call us. We're cool. <laughs> like, hippos can live and Aaron can have his grudge. That's just... It is what it is. Uh, so... Don't look for hippos to be like a, a company logo for CoFence anytime soon. <laughs> That's not happening. That's all this week. Talk to you next week. As always, stay curious.